It was more a budget to spend money rather than change tax law. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to Update 26 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. On Tuesday, the 11th of May 2021, the federal government published its budget for 2021-22. Here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne with 10 changes around tax and super. The big picture headline comment is the budget has some pretty huge spending commitments in relation to things like aged care and the national disability scheme, the digital economy as well. So so it's got some pretty huge spending initiatives, but it does also have some some interesting tax changes for businesses and individuals, um, particularly for tax nerds like like me. So every year at 7.30pm on budget night, I get my countdown ready and and get ready to jump on the budget website and uh, download the PDFs and and go through what changes are announced to, to happen related to tax. So this year, we've got about 10 changes and I would mainly characterize them as fairly minor overall. There's not any sort of real big unexpected items, particularly for private businesses and individuals. Yeah, I'll walk you through the the main changes that we've got. Measure number one. The first one is in relation to employee share scheme and option plans. Considering an employee share scheme or option plan, we're usually going to deal with Division 83A. And that, that says that essentially either employees are assessed upfront on any discount for shares or options that an employer issues to them. But in certain circumstances, that taxing point can be deferred to a later point in time, at which point when that point happens, the discount is then assessed at that particular point in time. When you say assessed upfront on any discount, you mean assessed upfront the moment those shares vest or those rights vest? Yeah, well, if it's if it's assessed upfront, then it's just assessed when they're issued. And, and if it's assessed deferred, it's, it's maybe when they vest or when they're unlocked or some other condition. Assessed upfront can happen even before they have vested. I, I always thought vesting was when it all happens. When you have performance hurdles. Depending on what those performance hurdles are, they can still be assessed upfront. For example, if the performance hurdle is something that doesn't really give you a real risk of forfeiture, then you can argue that it's upfront or the ATO can argue that it's upfront taxation. Most options, for example, would have performance hurdles linked to share price performance. And so with those the um, assessed upfront would only happen on the date of vesting. Yeah, yeah. And and if you're an employer considering employee share schemes, option plans, then it's actually a consideration of whether it's better to have upfront taxation or deferred. Now, you might think always deferred is always better, but if it's upfront, then any growth above the 
upfront discount would be taxed on capital account. The bit that is taxed upfront is income and then anything after that is capital. So yes, and if the share price goes up, then of course it's better to be taxed as early as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So so the, the change that's announced is useful, but relatively minor in the scheme of things. So one of the possible deferred taxing points under the current rules is the cessation of employment. So in other words, if you're issued shares or options and your employment ceases with that employer, then that's taxing point. Under the current one, well, the changes proposed in the budget, that will be removed as a uh, as a vesting point, sorry, as a taxing point. I see. So when would you be taxed? It looks like it would be one of the other points. So when they vest, uh, when a certain amount of years pass, when they're not subject to any forfeiture anymore. Um, but the fact of the, the mere leaving your employer will, will not trigger tax. And that's a positive change because very often when you leave your employer, especially in in current times, you might not leave your employer voluntarily, hence face financial hardship. And then if you're then also hit with a high tax bill because all your options suddenly vested, then this is not as good. So that's actually, that's good, having this taxing point removed. Yeah, it's definitely a positive change. I guess the practical benefit, particularly for private companies, is to consider, well, most of the time, a private company would only want a shareholder to be a person who's actually involved in the business. And if they're no longer involved in the business because they're no longer employed, uh, I guess there's a question of whether they would actually want that person to be a shareholder too. And in some circumstances, the consist constituent documents, either the shareholders agreement or the terms of issue may actually still have it as a condition that if your employment ceases, the other shareholders have the right to buy back those shares. Yeah, but that's a company law topic, whereas we are just talking about the taxing point. The taxing point has nothing to do with, you know, the rights of this person as a shareholder. Yeah, no, no, you're correct. Yeah, more what I was saying is that in a lot of times, if the employment ceases, the, the other shareholders may actually buy them, buy them out anyway at that point, um, and in which case they'd obviously be taxed, but there'd be at least oh, yes. liquidity and it would be funded at least. So um, it's definitely a positive change. Measure number two. So the next budget announcement that I wanted to discuss is really a continuation of announcements made in the 2021 federal budget, which was handed down in October. The governments announced that they will extend the life of the temporary full expensing Measures? So instant asset write-off. Yeah, the instant asset write-off that allowed um, an immediate deduction for eligible capital items that were acquired from 6 October 2020 that were first used or installed by 30 June 2022. That was the original deadline. So under this change, that deadline will be extended to 30 June 2023. So essentially for the next two years and one month, we'll have an almost unlimited asset write-off regime, uh, only limited to well, businesses that have aggregated turnover over $5 billion are excluded. But below that, then essentially it's almost an unlimited asset write-off regime. 
Yes. The only thing is the asset needs to be a tangible asset. So that means you can't claim, for example, the revamp of your website or a software cost or a similar under the instant asset write-off. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely right. Measure number three. The second part of the extensions is the extension of the lost carryback rules. So again, that has the same cap of $5 billion. And what the lost carryback rules do is they allow a business to actually, that's made a profit previously and now has made a loss, they can elect to apply uh, those losses against the previously made profits. So instead of the normal carry forward, we've got a, a carry back. So those changes, well, that regime was expected again to run until 30 June 2022. And now that is going to be extended to 30 June 2023. So that means if you have a loss-making client, have a look how much tax was paid in previous years and possibly you can claw that one back for your clients. Yeah, correct. So the profit years to look at is 2018, 19 and later. So any years before that, they are not included. And there's a real question to consider whether losses should be carried back or not. One benefit of carrying back the losses is you can often get into situations where losses cannot be used anymore. Um, for example, if the continuity of ownership test is failed or the same or similar business test is um, failed, or, or perhaps even if a tax consolidation event occurs and there's issues working out whether those losses can be used at all. So of carrying back the losses is you you sort of use them immediately rather than holding them over till till another day when they may or may not be able to be used. How does the uh, tax rate work? So in 2020, we were 27 and a half. In 2021, we are 26. Next year, we are 25. How does it work? My understanding is that it's based on the current tax rate. So 26% for this year and 25% for next year. So it's based on the applicable tax rate at the time rather than the rate that was in place when when the profits were made. So let's say I have a million dollar loss this year and I had a million dollar gain in 2018 when the tax rate was uh, 27 and a half. I hope I, I hope I got that right. I hope it wasn't something different. And so I paid $275,000 of tax in 2018, but now I can only get $260,000 of tax back. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> I believe that's correct. Consequentially, there's also a change to the franking account as well because when tax is paid, generate franking credits. When tax is refunded, you lose those franking credits. So if companies want to do this to in order to actually take money out of the actual entity, then they may actually have problems doing that. So it's really designed towards reinvestment rather than paying dividends to shareholders. Yeah, it's a very good point because company tax in the end is always just a prepayment of tax anyway. So by getting it back, you you will pay more tax later on when you distribute profits again. So yes, fair point. So it's just it's more cash flow measure than actual tax saving. Correct. Measure number four. So the next one that I wanted to talk about was regarding individuals. And this is a topic that I've been very passionate about over the years, and I know we've spoken about at length, uh, which is the tax residency rules for individuals. 
Now, the government's announced that they are going to replace the current rules, which they've noted are complex and difficult to apply in practice, I would say antiquated. They will replace the existing rules with a new modernised test that, that reflects really that the previous rules of, or the, the existing rules are very difficult to apply in, con, in, in practice. And that's been evidenced by cases like Harding's case, uh, Tubert, and, and, and a variety of other cases over the last 10 or so years. So for residency, the current rules are, you've got four tests, you've got ordinary concepts, you've got domicile, also known as permanent place of abode. You've got a 183-day test with certain outs and then you have a um, commonwealth public service residency rule as well so in the background the board of taxation has been doing consultations and reports regarding reforming these rules and and um, i was involved in some of those consultations what the but what the budget says is they're going to adopt the recommendations made by the board of taxation and uh, implement some new tests what that means in practice is not not 100% clear yet. What, what I think it means is that there's going to be a primary test, a bright line test, which will be a 183-day test. So if you, if you meet that, you're definitely in. And there'll then be a fallback secondary test, which will be based on objective criteria that can be tallied up and, and, and perhaps it might be a points-based system or um, if a number of factors, if sort of three or five factors are met, then, then you're a resident. So the, the current system is more a bit of a soup kitchen. You put all the factors in and you, work, you, you, make, you take the view on which ones are more strong than the others. There's not sort of a legislation that says if you're a citizen and you're away for two years and you had a house in Australia, then you're a resident, for example. What this secondary test may do is something similar to that. It may say that, well, look, if you're an expat, you're still a resident unless you do X, Y, and Z. So really to remove some of the uncertainty, and then they would have to design rules as well for inbound persons because their circumstances can be a little bit different. So have they just mentioned the point-based system or have they really outlined what you get points for? They haven't outlined a lot because the, the Board of Taxation consultations and report was, I mean, it wasn't legislation and it wasn't exactly clear how you would apply this in practice. There was a number of different options proposed. So this is an area, this is a, an item where there needs to be a lot more work done. There's going to need to be draft legislation, possibly further consultation, and then legislation being implemented. So I don't expect this to be effective from 1 July 2022. I mean, probably going to be lucky if it's effective. Sorry, I don't, I don't expect this to be effective as from 1 July 2021. And they'll probably be lucky to have it effective uh, as of 1 July 2022. It's a really complex area and it's actually difficult to, to essentially codify all the case law principles without actually changing the law. And I expect this codification practice may actually make it more difficult to escape the net of Australian residency. That That's my expectation. Measure number five. So moving on to small businesses and um, particularly tax disputes concerning small businesses. There's another item of uh, good news. 
So if a small business entity has a dispute with the tax office, then and it's unhappy with the decision made uh, by the original case officer and on objection, it can actually appeal that decision to a special division of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is called the Small Business Taxation Division. And there's various concessions available in that division with the purpose being to resolve disputes as cheaply and as efficiently as possible with small businesses essentially to be, being able to actually challenge decisions. So the change that's being made is normally when the ATO issues an assessment and it becomes due and payable, then the commission has a wide range of debt collection tools available. They can issue garnishing notices to third parties. They can issue asset or apply for asset freezing orders, bankruptcy or insolvency proceedings, and uh, and stop people leaving the country in normal times. Everyone stopped from that at the moment, but in what's called a departure prohibition order. So they've got really, really wide power. So the problem can often be that if, if your business is in dispute with the ATO, you, you essentially are, are fighting with one arm tied behind your back in that the amount is being disputed or the, the liability is being disputed, but you still have to pay it in the meantime and the ATO can enforce it. So what this budget announcement says is that small business entities, so that's entities that are carrying on a business with turnover of less than $10 million, they can apply to the small business taxation division for a pause or modification to the commissioner's normal debt recovery actions until the dispute's actually been decided by the AAT. So in other words, I'm a small business, I'm unhappy with the decision made. What I can do is when I appeal that decision to the AAT, I can actually apply to the to the AAT for an order saying that the commissioner cannot enforce his debt recovery powers until this dispute is resolved. So that's a really good change for small businesses. I suppose what's unclear from this announcement is whether or not pausing the debt recovery action affects the accrual of the general interest charge. Ordinarily, the general interest charge continues to accrue from the date the assessment's due and payable until the time that it's actually paid. Often in these dispute scenarios, something that uh, taxpayers will enter into is a 50-50 arrangement. So they pay half the debt and the commissioner agrees not to um, pursue the other half and, and, and make concessions regarding the accrual of general interest. It's not clear here what would happen, whether the general interest charge would just continue to accrue in the background. Of course, it wouldn't be payable if the taxpayer wins, but that, that that's not clear. The other comment is that the relief is not expected to be automatic to, to small business entities, because you can imagine that really this could be used as a, um, as a, as a means to uh, stall out payment, really. If there's no genuine dispute and taxpayers just trying to use this mechanism to delay payment, then it's expected relief won't be able to be granted in those circumstances. So it's not automatic. The AAT needs to consider the actual case before determining that the commissioner's debt recovery powers are paused. Measure number six. Changes regarding the ability of older Australians to make contributions to superannuation. So there's two changes here and they're intended that they will 
come into effect on 1 July 2022. First is regarding the downsizer contribution concession. So the downsizer contribution concession allows eligible individuals to make one-off post-tax contributions to superannuation of up to $300,000 per person. And the conditions that have to be met is that they have to have sold essentially their family home. Um, and until now, they had to be over 65 years of age as well. The eligibility age will change to be 60 rather than 65. So that's a positive change. The next change is that the government will repeal the work test completely for individuals aged 67 to 74. So in other words, individuals aged 67 to 74 can make non-concessional contributions without having to satisfy the work test. That is a good change as well because it simplifies the rules and increases flexibility for older Australians. One thing that's not clear is whether those changes would also apply to concessions. Sorry. One thing that's not clear from that announcement is whether those changes also apply to contributions made under the CGT cap. Those are the special contributions allowed under the small business CGT concessions. But if it applies to non-concessional contributions, then I would expect those changes would also apply to contributions made under the CGT cap. What you're saying is this downsizer contribution will not fall under the normal total superannuation balance cap. Yeah, I mean, there's two there's two restrictions on superannuation. One is that ordinarily you cannot make any contribution, any non-concessional contributions at all when the balance is um, 1.6. And then you've got rules about moving money from accumulation phase to pension phase as well. That's a transfer balance cap. Yeah, you have TBC and you have TBA. Right? Yes, yes. I believe the transfer balance cap is now $1.7 million as well, which makes it even more confusing. So that means the TSB cap stayed at 1.6. So you can't make any further contributions into super once your total superannuation balance is $1.6 million. But you can now move up to $1.7 million into pension mode because the TBC increased from 1.6 to 1.7 million. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's correct. And and it's important to note that the different types of contributions have different rules. So for example, the contributions under the CGT cap are not subject to that $1.6 million balance limit, and they can still be made. I believe that's the same for the downsizer contribution as well, but I'd need to check that. So the rules for non-concessional contributions more generally are that they can't be made once that balance hits $1.6 million. The uh, downsizer contribution, just like the CGT contributions, are not subject to the uh, 1.6 million total superannuation balance cap, but both of them would still be subject to the uh, TBC, which is now 1.7 million. Mm, yeah, yeah. Measure number seven. So the next item that I thought I'd mention is the removal of the super guarantee threshold. So current law is that employers don't need to make contributions on behalf of their employees if that employee earns less than $450 per month, sort of a de minimis uh, threshold. That'll be removed with intended effect from 1 July, 2022. And this is really aimed at situations where I guess the inequality between people earning $500 a week and people earning, sorry, $500 a month and people earning $400 per month. And, and 
those those lower uh, amounts not being um, superannuation not being paid on those amounts. So this is a good change. I think so too. A, it makes it easier. You know, you don't have to explain so much when you discuss super obligations of an employer. B, it stops funny games that are sometimes played. And C, it means there's no point in having several employees at very low wages to avoid super. You might as well just have one person and give them a proper job. Yeah, exactly. So it just removes that threshold. So it means that all employees pay super. doesn't matter what their monthly earnings are. I expect that change would also apply to contract payments as well. There's no detail of that in the in the um, in the budget itself, but because contractor payments can often uh, are often subject to superannuation as well, I would expect that that same requirement would be for contractor payments as well. Yeah, I'm very sure because there's actually no rule for contractor payments as such. They're either deemed as employees and then super rules as G rules apply like to any other employee or they're not deemed employees and then the superannuation rules don't apply. Yeah, exactly. So it should be, it really should follow, follow the same treatment. Measure number eight. The next measure that I thought I would talk about is, is things in relation to uh, industry specific concessions. And, and there's, there's a few of these, there's some aimed at the digital economy. So the first one is that taxpayers are now will, will now will be able to self-assess the effective life of certain intangible depreciating assets. So for example, patents, registered designs, copyrights, and in-house software that are acquired from 1 July 2023. So what this means in practice is taxpayers can choose the effective life and the shorter the effective life, the greater the deduction. They don't need to apply um, statutory limits. The commissioner's effective rates. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, that measures a while off taking effect. It's still a bit over two years away from actually taking effect. That will give increased flexibility and more rapid deductions. Will be from 1st of July, 2023. Yep. There's also a 30% refundable tax offset for qualifying Australian digital games expenditure. While this has been flagged in the budget, there's there's very little information about what the criteria are to qualify for it. I guess it just, just in a big picture, it may be worth thinking about it in a similar way to the R&D tax offset in that you need to undertake certain activities and if those activities qualify, then you're entitled to, to an offset. So what was that again? A 30% refundable tax offset for qualifying digital game developers? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. That sort of expenditure wouldn't be R&D, but the government wants to encourage that activity taking place in Australia. So, Does that uh, surprise you? Because that's a very small niche, digital game developers. I mean, of course, it's a huge market, but it's still reasonably yeah look it is reasonably niche and i guess it's probably similar to the film offset that's existed as well which the, okay. the film offset was to encourage films to be made in australia or part of those films to be made in australia so it's niche yeah but now now that you mentioned the um, film offset now it makes sense to because games become more and more like video films anyway so yeah that makes sense then yeah And the other industry-specific one that I wanted to mention is, is a really interesting one called uh, called the patent box. 
what this is, is it applies to patents in the Australian medical and biotechnology fields and companies that derive income from those patents, that that income will be taxed at a concessional rate of 17%. So instead of normal corporate tax rate, which is either 30 or 26% currently and 25% from next year, a rate of 17% will apply to income derived from medical and biotechnology patents. Two thoughts. One is it's only a timing difference because, as you know, as before, company tax is just a prepayment of tax. Hence, this 17% doesn't really save any tax long term. The second question is, how did they get to the 17%? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're both good, good insights. I'm not sure why the rate of 17% was was landed upon. I imagine they considered what other rates are overseas and and something that would be competitive. But I understand some of those rates overseas are actually much lower than that anyway. And then, yeah, with the timing point, you're absolutely right. Although the company would pay tax on this part of their income at 17%. The next question is, well, that, that income for, for shareholders, how, how will that work? So firstly, if the shareholders are Australian residents, then they'll, of course, have top-up tax and they may not be able to fully frank dividends as well because they would have only paid 17% on some of their income and, and, and potentially 25% or 30% on other parts of their income. Um, for foreign shareholders they may have withholding tax on um, on their unfranked dividends, assuming that the rules will say that the franking rate's still 25 or 30% and there's not a special 17% franking rate, for example. I don't think that's the intention. I think the, the normal franking rules would still apply. And, and yes, it is just a timing benefit in that some of their income will be taxed at a lower rate. But the consequence of that is most likely that there'll be a lot less franking credits to um, to, to be uh, assigned to dividends. Yes, that's a very good point because under the current franking rules, you can't say those overseas shareholders have their dividends franked at 17% and those have them franked as usual. You can't do that. It has to be all franked at, at a certain percentage. And hence, if you don't want to frank it at 25%, the only other option is not to frank it at all. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got to think about things like the franking benchmark and the franking deficit tax and things like that. I guess the other structuring consideration is whether that means that a sort of stapled structure would, would be of benefit where we're not talking about a holding company and a subsidiary, but we're talking about two sister entities, one that might hold a patent and one that operates um, a business or generates some other um, income that's not at this 17% rate so that there is a bit more flexibility in uh, how to pay dividends. So, if, for example, if you've got two sister entities, one holds a patent, 17% rate to all of its income, and the other one has the operating income taxed at 30%, say, then you can effectively get a choice on fully franking some of that income, that may be a consideration. Measure number nine. Yeah, so I've got two more points that I wanted to mention. The first one is self-education expenses. Now, I'm going to go into this in a bit more detail in, a, in an upcoming um, tax talk. However, there has been some change to self-education expenses. 
However, the change is very minimal. Under current law, the first $250 of uh, prescribed, prescribed course or education expenses is not deductible. And that the change is that that $250 threshold will be removed. So in other words, rather than being only able to claim a deduction from the $251, the first dollar onwards will be able to be deducted. Now, of course, this doesn't actually address whether an individual can or cannot actually deduct expenditure at all, and those normal nexus tests still apply. Unfortunately, while that was mentioned in last year's budget, that that this system is a bit of a disincentive to retrain and reskill, doesn't seem that anything's actually done about this issue in in the budget. Okay, so that basically means number nine is is the lack of a measure. It's it's the missing of a measure. Yeah, yeah. Measure number ten. So the last measure that that I wanted to raise was for not for profits. So not for profits depending on their circumstances, may be entitled to an income tax exemption. And there's a variety of exemptions available in the Act. Currently, they can generally self-assess for whether they're eligible for an income tax exemption or not. What the change is, is that the ATO is actually going to build an online system for these not-for-profit entities. And what will be required is each year, income tax exempts not-for-profit entities that have an ABN will actually be required to submit an online annual self-review form. The stated purpose of this is to increase transparency and, and ensure that only eligible not-for-profits are actually accessing income tax exemptions. I suppose the thing that's unclear is exactly what will be required and what is involved in these self-review forms. As a minimum, I would expect the not-for-profit would need to disclose on what basis or, or which particular section of legislation and which particular income tax exemption they believe applies to them. But it may be more than that. It may be making certain declarations on the conditions of that income tax exemption and maybe even supporting evidence and documents. I don't think it will go that far, but um, it's an interesting change. I think in practice, it may lead to increased ATO audit activity as well over the income tax exemptions that have been claimed. Do you think this one is just about income tax exemptions or do you think it's also about the financing of illegal activities or more to understand how much money different charities have to understand where money is coming from. Because I can imagine at the moment we might have quite significant amounts flowing into Australian charities for various purposes, some of them political. But then again, we have Austrac, so we would know through Austrac anyway when large amounts of funds are running. Are yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not sure. I mean, there's there is a wide range of sorry, there is a wide range of entities that a not-for-profit that can get income tax exemptions. For example, a union, as in an employee union, has generally has income tax exempt status or can, depending on their circumstances. So it may be, yeah, to get sort of more oversight of um, where not-for-profits are getting their, their, their funds and then what activities they're actually generating income from. I guess time will tell with this. It's not expected that this will take effect until 1 July 2023. 
So as a closing comment, there's a few things that are not covered in the budget and not mentioned at all. Of particular interest to me, Division 7A is not not in the budget. So I guess whether that will be reformed, if so, and when hasn't been addressed. Neither have the CGT rollovers more generally. And the Board of Taxation did a report on the review, a review of CGT rollovers, made some recommendations. They haven't been taken up or mentioned at all in the budget. I guess no other sort of concessions for small businesses have been discussed or affected. So, for example, small business CGT concessions or the small business restructure relief remain as is, as does the general 50% CGT discount. So there's a number of big ticket items that, that haven't been touched in the budget. And the other point I note, there's a lot of these these measures are stated to apply from either 1 July 2022 or 1 July 2023. So there are some way of actually being implemented. A lot of the times you'll see budget announcements that are take effect from budget night, but that approach hasn't been adopted here. We're looking at like we'll get an election in early 2022 as well. So I guess time will tell whether which of these will actually be enacted depending on what the gov- which government uh, or which political party actually wins the election in early 2022. Yeah, it's a little bit cheeky, isn't it, to push it that far out two years ahead because then you basically make a budget for the next government, whoever that will be, and... Um, yeah, you make it contingent of being re-elected. Yeah, yeah, and and it's 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 very fair enough not to make changes from budget night because the problem with making changes from budget night is there's usually not enough detail in the proposals or the announcements to actually understand how they'll work in practice because there's no legislation. So to- totally understand that. I guess just that 2023 date is a long way out. So so yeah, it's uh, it's really potentially putting something in place for a future government that would then need to decide whether they wanted to stay with that measure or um, abandon it or modify it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's other things like the low to middle income tax offset, but I figure those are not, not that interesting and they're relatively straightforward items. So. Yeah, and the thing is just that they stayed. Yeah, it's just that they stayed another year anyway, so it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not a big thing. I think that's a good wrap. I mean, it's, it's a pretty boring budget in a sense. Like for me, it's probably a, more of a boring budget, but there's a few things in there that are interesting. So it was more a budget to spend money than to change tax law. Yeah, that's a good summary. It was more a budget to spend money rather than uh, change tax law. So that is for another year. Welcome back. So 10 changes. Let's just quickly go through them. Number one, changes to the taxing point of employee share schemes. Number two, as widely expected, the instant asset write-off got extended until 30th of June 2023. Number three, the loss carryback was extended as well to June 2023. Number four, and this is a big change, the tax residency for individuals will change to a point-based system. Number five, improved dispute resolution for small business. Number six, the starting age for the downsizer contributions reduces from 65 to 60. And the starting age for the work test for super contributions increases to 75. Number seven, removal of the superannuation guarantee threshold. So no matter how much you earn, 
you are entitled to super. Number eight, industry-specific concessions. You can self-assess the effective life for intangible assets in the digital economy. Digital gaming attracts a 30% refundable tax offset and medical and biotechnology receive a 17% corporate tax rate within the so-called patent box. Number nine, no change to self-education expenses. So this is one of the missing measures. And then number 10, an online system for NPO where not-for-profits report their financial data. And so there are some changes missing or not happening. One is no change to Division 7A, also no changes to CGT rollovers and other small business CGT concessions, also no change to the 50% CGT discount and also no change to borders. So we are all still locked in. That is the federal budget for 2021-22 in a nutshell. In the next episode, episode 293, Ian McLean of Bush Agribusiness will talk about the opportunity cost of focusing too hard on saving tax. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.